and they were having a, a, a ceremony inducting uh, some Hall of Fame people into the Southern Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. And uh, and they, they told me, you know, to, they'd like for me to attend the meeting because I was going to be inducted in. So I attended, and the master ceremony started talking about me. And, and when I walked up there, I thought he was going to faint because he thought I was dead. That was Dave Whitlock with one of the many classic stories he shares today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with one other person today who you think would love to hear from Dave Whitlock and the great uh, stories he has. Dave Whitlock uh, is on today uh, to share some of those stories and a little focus on the White River and his life in fly fishing. Uh, Dave is one of the most well-known fly fishermen in the world and digs into a little bit on terrestrial patterns today, shares some funny stories, and tells us whether he's an artist or a fly fisherman first. This one has been a long time coming, so I'm really excited to share it with you today. If you stay till the end, I've got Henry Hughes on to read a poem from the recent edition of the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors. So Fly Gear, headed up by 17-year-old James Carlin of the U.S. Youth Fly Fishing Team, has a buttery, soft, quick-drying line that I have been loving. Head over to SoFlyGear.com and support James and the podcast we are also supported by the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has an exceptional fall edition out right now. Head over to ftjangler.com to support the great work Craig and the gang have created just for you. That's ftjangler.com. So without further ado, here is Dave Whitlock from davewhitlock.com. How's it going, Dave? Well, good morning, everybody, and good morning, Dave. It's fine. It's a great fall day here. In Oklahoma, you know, cool and clear, and just getting ready to start uh, our our beautiful Ozark Fall. Oh, amazing, amazing! Yeah, I just had a, a guest on. Brian Wise was uh, f- from Ozark Fly Fishing. He talked about tying yeah. streamers, and uh, so yeah. this is exciting. I've been uh, this has been a long time coming. I've been trying to get you on. I know you went through some yeah. some things a couple of years ago, and I'm really happy that yeah. that you're here. Yeah, yeah, I've got a. Uh, I had a little bit of an APID problem or a big one, and I lost 27 pounds and was in the hospital off and on for about seven days. But, uh, but hey, I got me all cleared up, and I've got a great heartbeat and uh, good blood pressure and, uh, you know, and good oxygen. So maybe I got another year or two uh, filled up ahead of me. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it sounds like you're sounding good. And uh, you're, I think you're about the same age as my dad, and it's, uh, it's yeah. interesting because I know talking to him, he... He's, I don't know if he's fished as much as you, but it's been, he's spent his life fishing and, and, you know, yeah, he's slowed yeah. down quite a bit over the last, you know, few years and this COVID thing. I mean, how's COVID doing? Is everything going okay with on that end? Well, I've been, you know, I'm completely quarantined here. Yeah. Uh, we live on, you know, on a ranch and, uh, I don't go to town or anything. I, Great. I really miss going to the health club every day or not every day, but you know, every week. And, uh, uh, that's probably the thing I miss most as far as being able to go outside but uh, we've had some students here, and they they mask up, and we take a lot of precautions. But uh, but uh, it's it's a tough thing, you know. A lot yeah. of people are trying to figure out a way to cope with it, change their lives. I know, I know, we're we're, we're dealing with it. But uh, well, let's jump into fly fishing. You, you obviously have probably one of the biggest names as far as I'm concerned in, in fly fishing. And I I think when I was a little kid, I picked up a book, uh, the guide to a aquatic trout foods and we'll talk about that a little bit later but can you just bring us back to how you first got into fly fishing and, and tell that story well i was born and raised in oklahoma uh the, par- the parents that were lower blue collar workers they had they didn't have much money during the depression and uh, and when i was uh eight years old I, my folks all fished but they fished mostly for food rather than sport and when i was eight years old i was thumbing through the pages of my granddad's L.L. Bean catalog, and I saw this fishing rod and these these, these fishing lures. I've never seen an artificial lure with a feathers and hair tied onto it, and I had no idea that they were flies. And so, 
or the or it was a fly rod. It was a beautiful thing. It was a bamboo rod with red wraps on it, and I'd never seen anything so beautiful. And I asked my granddad. I said, "Grandpa, what is this?" And he said, "Dave, that's fly fishing, not for us, only for the rich people." <laughs> and uh, and so fast forward to 1980, and I became the head of the LL Bean fly fishing program for 10 years. Oh, wow. Now, how in the world could somebody, it's like somebody born in the Sahara Desert becoming, you know, a great swimmer. Uh, it was just, they, it was just meant to be. There, there was no rhyme or real reason why it was that way other than it just meant to be. Yeah, that's amazing. And and I just thinking about years, I think uh, when you, eight years old, you, that's right around 1940, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nineteen forty. I was born in thirty four, yeah. Oh, thirty four, yeah, yeah. Nineteen thirty four, yeah. So like I was saying, my dad, I think he, well, he was born in thirty nine, so you got him by about yeah. five years. So uh yeah. okay, cool. Well well we skipped a lot in between there, nineteen forty and nineteen eighty, and obviously, you know, getting to the point where I and I know a little bit of the history. I mean, I, I could just briefly I basically I think what it came down to is your mom, you know, because you were kinda of coming out of the depression era era. Yeah. They really wanted you to um to have a good solid job. But you really had a passion for fly fishing early and and you bypassed it, right, for a few years. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, I, I uh uh through my teens and, you know, I learned to get gradually learned to fly fish and uh, you know, I never I was I was bad at it for a long time, but I loved it so much it didn't matter. And uh, uh, so, by the time I got to college age, I, I knew I wanted to be an artist and a writer. And uh, I wanted to particularly write about fly fishing. My folks really discouraged it because it just felt like that was uh, not the best way to, you know, to spend an education. So uh, I got degrees in in uh, not degrees, but but uh, majors in chemistry and physics and biology. And I worked. I went to work in petroleum research, production research in Tulsa and Bartlesville for until I was 35. And uh, that was good work, pretty confining, you know, with labs and what have you. But uh, and uh, and I was pretty good at it. But it was never. I was always. I was around people and, and places that I just prefer to be someplace else. So uh, in 30, when I was 35, I quit my research job and became Dave Whitlock. Hmm. And that meant that I was earning my living, tying flies and riding and painting and, and lecturing about fly fishing. So uh, just just exactly what I always wanted to do. And Dave, it was successful, you know. But mm-hmm. in, within about a year, I was pretty much uh, self-employed, uh, self-sustaining employed, and uh, and so uh, ever since then, that's what I've been doing. That's it. That's it. And that would, again, just years-wise, that would take us to about 1965, somewhere in that range, when you kind of went yeah, all yeah. in. Yeah. What, what What did that feel like when you finally, you know, can you take us to that it moment? It was wonderful. You, was it? It was wonderful to finally be your own boss, have your own hours, have your own work ethic, get the credit for what you did, rather than somebody else getting credit for it. Because I have many times, uh, you know, when you work for different companies and and particularly if you're creative or, or in that way, you don't get credit for it. Somebody else gets credit for it. And it was just a fantastic thing. And I worked a lot harder, but it was a, but it was a very self, self-satisfying work because it was, you know, it was mine, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, I still to even today work, you know, eight to 10, 12 hours a day because I love it. Oh, wow. Well, wow, so you, so you're still uh, working strong and and still doing. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, every day. Usually, I I get in, into my studio or office about uh, eight or nine o'clock, and I work, uh, you know, until noon, and have about an hour nap, and then get up, and then I usually work till about seven thirty in the evening. Oh wow! And then uh, and then uh, you know I head back to the house. I my studio and office about a hundred yards from my. Uh, you know, from my home. Oh, great, great. And and what keeps you busy? What are you working on these days? Mostly artwork, mostly, you know, uh, original paintings. And uh, I'm getting ready to do a, a big uh, a new series for Trout Magazine. Uh, and uh, it's going to be quite a production. I can't tell you about it right now, sure. but it's uh, significantly more than I've been doing for them every issue. And uh, I'm really excited about it. Nice. nice. So that, and they're, they're really the only one. Excuse me. They're they're really the only ones that I write for now. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, and, and, and naturally, I was writing for you know, the fly fishing magazines, but uh, that uh, that was began it kind of started becoming nowhere near as satisfying, and and, and hmm. I, I don't know whether you know it or not, but they just don't pay anything at oh. all. You know, you'd starve to death if you tried to be to be a fly fishing rider, <laughs> precisely. So, it, so I, I just use the other venues, and the art is is my is my real true love. You know, when I'm when I'm painting or drawing, uh, you know, outdoor subjects, uh, uh, I'm just just as happy as if I had a fly rod in my hand. That's that's great. So, so you consider this is a kind of a, a you know an artist versus a fly fisherman. Which one are you? Would you consider yourself first, the first at, or or maybe the the bigger one? Well, the one I like to do most is art. Oh, really? But but uh, but the but the but the fly fishing and the art are just like my right and left hand. You know, I. I, I would not ever want to do without either one of them. Yeah, yeah, no, it it's cool. And your artwork you can you can be seen not only in a lot of the books and work you've done, but you've published in in uh, like you said other uh, journals and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing is that, that being a, being an illustrator for so many years, you know, it, it really empowered me to uh, to do some special things for people's books and for my own books and in magazines because. I had the knowledge of the sport, and I could, you know, I could, I could show that with my artwork. Uh, and uh, one picture sometimes is better than, than a thousand words. Think of a brown trout or something like that. How would you, when you're drawing something like that, give that personality? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, like a brown trout is just a supreme predator, and uh, they have incredibly unique markings and. And making those vivid markings, and and then creating in the in the head, you know, a predacious look in the eye and the in the forehead of them, you know, and it, uh, gives them really what they what they're thinking about, you know, and that is eating, killing, and eating something. So, uh, but uh, but you can make the body beautiful, but but as you come into doing the head and the eye, you uh, you you begin to put that attitude of Yes, I'm going to catch you and eat you. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're ferocious predators. So, well, you know, it's interesting because I think of myself. Like I said, I remember when I was a kid and and knowing you know your name out there and um, and all of that. I mean, what do you attribute? You know, kind of your success and your name. How you're one of the biggest names out there over the years. Do you have anything you can point back to? Um, you know, when you think back of your, your history, I probably already said it. You know, just. Uh, I love for it and studying every minute that I that I possibly could. Studying any little puddle of water, any pond, any creek, or any river, any lake, to see, uh, you know, to see to see what lived there and what uh, and how it existed and what fed on it and what have you. It's always just been, yeah. you know, my my keenest interest, and I think that's kind of the, you know, uh, the, the epic of the story of fly fishing is that you look at a water. And, and the first thing you say is what what lives there, and what lives there, and what does it feed on, and where does it feed on it, and how does it feed on it, and uh, you approach the you approach the opportunity to catch a fish or whatever whatever is there uh, with a fly, and uh, that's just kind of my epic as far as I'm approaching the subject. Yeah, that's it. So basically, that passion. If somebody was listening now that's maybe new to fly fishing, it might be the same thing. Just tell them to say, hey, just just stick with it and, and go in every day, put yeah. something out there. And, and you know, and, and, and look past the surface of the water, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, try, to, try to figure out what's really going on because it's a wonderful story. You know, it never, there's never two days in a year that's alike in a stream or a lake or a pond. And, uh, and seeing that, that, you know, that evolving episode, uh, is so fascinating to a fly fisherman because we can take advantage of it. We can kind of become actors in that scenario or that, you know, or that drama. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, I want to talk just briefly a little bit about some uh, dry fly. We're going into a dry fly fishing season, and um, I've had a number of people on. We've talked a little bit about this, but, you know, maybe you could talk about your home water now. I know you've moved over the last few years, but can you talk about your home water and maybe talk about some of the hatches there and some of the dry flies fishing you have? Well, first of all, Dave, where I live is in the upper upper northeastern part of Oklahoma, and that's the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. And we have uh, the for trout. They're some 
some few spring creeks that are, that are stocked or that have wild fish in them. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's tailwater fishing, you know, blow dams. Yeah. And uh, this time of the year, on the White River system up in the Ozarks, uh, where primarily that's for 40 years my home water, uh, this time of year you have micro caddis hatching mostly in midges mm-hmm. uh, for, for surface flies. Uh, uh, it's a little too early for blue, the blue-wing olives to hatch. They hatch a little later on in December, in January and February. But uh, but the spring creeks, of course, uh, will have you know various uh, blue-wing olives and uh, midges and what have hatching this time of the year too. But but what really is significant is terrestrials. Mm. Uh, all of these waters are you know are receiving just tons of terrestrials this time of the year, you know, ants and beetles and lots of grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. And when I think of fishing on the surface in this part of the, of the world, uh, this time of the year, uh, it's terrestrials. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, and and you've had, I mean, I know you've had a number of your own flies. I think one one of the terrestrials I think about is the uh, you have a, a hopper pattern, right? Um, well, it's probably the most famous hopper pattern in the world. If I have to beat, if I could beat my own drum, uh, yeah. today's hopper, yeah. Uh, it's probably uh, what I'm best known for oh, no around the world. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I and I've known the Dave's Hopper for you know forever as well. What what makes the Dave Hopper? Uh, what, what makes that one stand out? Do you think? Why is it so? It so... catches fish like the Dickens. <laughs> yeah. Well, what it is, Dave, is that that uh, you know with the with the knowledge and ability that I have when I tie flies, I, I'm more of a you know, I'm a, I'm a, a engineering sculpture, so to speak, with flies, and I try to make a fly look like, you know, what it's supposed to imitate, but also uh, sound and act like what it's supposed to imitate, and and so I guess you basically fish well, mm-hmm. and uh, the day's hopper uh, looks like a, a real hopper, but when it hits the water and the way it floats and the way it acts, uh, it acts like a hopper, mm. and uh, it there's a you know, a lot of different other hopper designs and patterns, but I, I really believe probably this this particular fly is as close to perfection as uh, as you ever need to get to, to imitating a hopper. Nice. And I think most people who fish it would agree. Yeah, yeah. I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes um, with a couple. There's a bunch of videos of people that have tied yeah. it online, yeah. and, and yeah. Um, it's got to be. We have a uh, yeah. We have a, a DVD of the history of how it developed oh, today's wow. opera and also how to, you know, accumulate the material to tie it and how to tie it and how to fish it. Oh, cool. So, uh, so if anybody's interested really in getting into David, Dave Hopperology, uh, that DVD would just, uh, would put them 20 years ahead. Perfect. Oh, uh, in, in that DVD, can we find that at your website? Yeah, on the website, yeah. Oh, great. Okay, I'll put a link to that as well so everybody can go yeah. there and, and grab sure. that. Um, so yeah. I think the terrestrials is really an interesting um, topic. Maybe we can dig a little little more into that. I, I did want to check in a little bit. We had a few questions from our Facebook group. Um, yeah, yeah. L- listeners out there, and one of them, um, this is a lot of different subject. I guess we're kind of changing the subject, but uh, Bruce Cruck was asking about, he had this, uh, he talked about the fly fishing video for, for bass back in the day. Yeah, you, yeah. He said he, that was, had a real big impact on him. Can you talk about that video a little bit? Yeah, well, I did two of those. I don't know which one he's talking oh, okay. about. I did one uh, for an independent, uh, uh, Dave, Dave Millen down in Texas. That was the first one. And then I did one for Bass Pro. Uh, cause for, for four years I was there fly fishing consultant and i did a uh, instructional video for them so i'm not quite sure yeah which you're talking about but but having said that both of them pretty much followed the same format and that's basically you know how how to approach a, a bass fishery with a fly rod and what flies to use and how to cast them and how to retrieve them and how to hook bass and how to land bass you know mm. so they uh you know yeah. the, the storyline was uh Pretty much the same on both. Gotcha. And, and are you? Do you have some? Uh, you know, as far as on the bass end, I mean, you're you're in that area. I know. In fact, I had a, a really good friend who who went to college yeah. in Oklahoma and fished yeah. bass all the time. So is that something you still? Um, still oh, every, yeah. almost every day. Oh wow. Well, first of all, my front yard is a bass and bluegill pond. Nice. Uh, I have an acre and three quarter pond that is my front yard, and uh, we keep it well uh, stocked with bass and sunfish for 
instruction when our students come here. And in the wintertime, we stock it with trout. So I don't have to go very far to catch a bass, uh, you know, if I, if I decide to. But where I live on this rancher, we have, uh, there's eight ponds or lakes, and we have a beautiful smallmouth stream. Wow. So so uh, I'm just living, Amazing. you know, shortcast away from from that warm and cool water opportunity. That's that is really cool. And the, the students, I want to check in with you on that because I know that you guys had a school right back in the day. Can you talk about a little bit about that school? And then you also, I think you closed it down back in '04. Was that correct? Well, yeah. Well, I had, you know, I started really the, my serious teaching with the LL Bean. Okay. And uh, and then uh, uh, Bass Pro uh, made me an offer that to, to uh, an opportunity to develop a wonderful nature park and trout stream and uh and also uh the carrot was i'll build you a beautiful fly fishing school if you'll come work for me and so uh i did and we built the stream but but the the, the fly fishing school never got built oh. and so uh i moved on to gander mountain and did the same thing for another four years and then uh him and i just kind of looked at each other and said you know we need to be doing this by with our, by, for ourselves yeah. Uh, working for these big box companies, uh, uh, it's tough. Right. If you're a creative person or you're trying to really do things that that aren't necessarily earning a lot of money, but but are, have a lot of aesthetics or a lot of uh, of uh, of just you know personal interest for people. So uh, so we created our own schools and we did it for ten years in Arkansas, and we took eight students for three days, and that uh, and we did it just like we wanted to do it, which was the best way to do it. And uh, I don't think there's ever been a fly fishing school anywhere that was more complete for a three-day opportunity for a person to learn how to, what fly fishing is and the basics of fly fishing and then fishing still water and fishing flowing water and tying flies. And we had all of that in that in that course. And so uh, mm-hmm. uh, we just have a we have an alumni group like you can't believe it uh, because that we so. You know, we sowed the seeds so well that they became very avid fly fishermen and their friends and their families. And uh, and I even have one family of three generations that basically uh, uh, were fly fishing because of that school. Oh, wow. There you go. So, And you guys still do some teaching right now, right? Yeah. Now, we live in Oklahoma, as we mentioned. And what we do there, we do David Days or David David Emily. And we uh, and one to, to four people come and spend the day with, with us. And, uh, and and it's not a structured school. They usually come and tell us kind of what they want to learn. And we uh, evaluate what their skills are, and we proceed through the day or the, or the, the next two days, basically uh, customizing the school to exactly what they want to do. Uh, I had a school yesterday, and uh, the gentleman, wanted, wanted, wife had never caught a fish before, and she wanted to learn how to fly fish and catch a fish. And so Emily, uh, you know, mainly instructed her. And the gentleman had fly fish for, for about 15 years, and he uh, he wanted to learn how to roll cast a lot better and become a better smallmouth fisherman. So we took care of that for him that day. Hmm. There you go. Well, it's interesting looking back you now. You know, I kind of understand the, the history there. I mean, you started back early on kind of working for a company and you're always trying to get back to that entrepreneurial, right? You love that, that thing. And you finally got there and then Bass Pro and some big uh, corporations came in and you were kind of working for them, right? You, then you got away from that, got back to your own thing. I mean, wh- why is that entrepreneurial thing? Why did you always strive to get there? And it seems like most of your life was working for yourself. Why was that so important for you? Well, because I think I'm artistic and creative. And and uh, it's awful hard to find a satisfying job working for somebody else when you when you need to be creative and you need to be artistic and whatever. They 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 don't want you to do that. They want you to produce a product. Right. And uh, I think it, I've always felt like that working, you know, doing my own work, my own art, and what have you. I I, I could do it the way I wanted to do it, and uh, that's kind of the way. I, but that's been my creed for most of my life, Dave. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I, I think it's, it's and you know, yeah. I think almost anybody could do that. Uh, you know, just search their soul and find out what they really love to do most, and uh, and figure out a way. Particularly here 
in our country. I don't think there's a better country in the world to be self-employed. The only thing you have to do when you become self-employed is have a good work ethic. Uh, you cannot survive if you're not willing to work more than eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. You know, especially at first. And, uh, but if you put that time in, uh, the people will, and their property people will come to your door and you'll have all the work you ever wanted to do. Uh, almost the minute that I became a full-time professional fly fisherman, uh, job opportunities opened up to me all over the world. Hmm. And it was because I was available. You know, I wasn't somebody else's. And so uh, yeah. it was easy to pick up the phone and have Dave Whitlock come and give him a lecture or a demonstration or, or illustrate a book for him. That's really cool. Yeah, I've I've interviewed now, I think we're over 160 different people on this podcast. And I, I've heard so many stories similar to what you say, you know, where people were working for, you know, I remember one back where a guy was working for a fly shop and he ended up uh, kind of quitting because he was um, couldn't do what he wanted to do. And as soon as he quit, yeah. as soon as he quit, he had all these companies come out to him and said, come on, you know, we, come do, you know, work with us. And so it's that opportunity yeah. thing, right? Like you're yeah. on your own yeah. and, and it kind of comes yeah. to you. Yeah, well... Uh, yeah, I, I worked uh, as an employee two years for LL Bean, and the other eight I was a consultant. Oh, I see. And uh, in the minute I, the minute I, that I, uh, I became an employee, because they wanted me to get better benefits for the time I was spending, and you know it was a really meaningful, nice offer. But Dave, the minute that I became an employee, they started treating me different—not oh, wow. bad, but just different. Yeah, you know. And they started telling me what to do rather than having me do what they needed, you know. Sure. And so, uh, and I think that's the way it is. And so, so if you work on for yourself, whether you're a plumber or whether you're, a, you know, yep. an artist or what have you, uh, you get to do it your way. And if you've got to work epic and do it right, uh, people people are going to love uh, patronizing you. Yeah. That's powerful. That's powerful stuff. So, uh, you had another question here from the Facebook group. This is from uh, Garrett Lesko, and he he wanted to, he asked uh, what what inspires your fly tying and your dubbing blends. Right now, I'm involved in writing a, my, I guess my last great epic book, uh, sort of speaking, and it's called A Fly Tire's Life. And I'm going through all the history of how I developed, you know, a lot of the things that uh, that, uh, uh, that that I developed in fly tying, and one of them was was dubbing, and uh, I had learned about dubbing, uh, you know, when I first started tying nymphs and wet flies, and uh, there wasn't very many people doing it at all, just a very few few people, and they were taking animal hair, you know, and blending it together. Probably Roseboro was probably mm. the one that I, that, that was the most, the best known for it, and then, he, then he'd wrap it on a, on a hook, and I realized that it was an unbelievably creative way to create naturalism. You know, by blending hairs and different fibers together, and then uh, you know wrapping them on the hook to create shape and and movement and illusion and color, and uh, so uh, I began to uh, to do it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really, really, really uh, uh, advanced the way ahead uh, was that I started making dubbing with a coffee bean grinder, and rather than using a you know, just a, a teasing of the hair or putting in a bottle, a jar of water like the father did with some detergent and shaking it up until it mixed, I started air blending it. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I was able to create dubbing textures and colors and amounts that, uh, that, that just tenfolded my ability to really make gorgeous, perfect dubbing for any kind of a fly I wanted to create. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Here you go. FTJ Angler has a great fall edition that's out right now. You can find Lucas Stevens, who visits Winston Fly Rods in the uh, fall edition for an insider look at, and a rare interview with writer Ted Leeson, someone I hope to have on the podcast soon. Patrick Wall pays homage to Harry Lemire's Tide in Hand Atlantic Salmon Flies displayed in the Marguerite Salmon Museum. Boots Allen takes us to the pond with a masterclass in Stillwater. Dennis Dobble travels to Scotland in search of Atlantic salmon. 
Plus, FTJ Deputy Editor Henry Hughes with a mysterious fly fishing story and Nora Etsy with her poem, No Business, which I actually tried to read unsuccessfully a few podcasts ago. I'm not sure if you remember hearing that. So um, I'd love it if you could press pause right now, head over to ftjangler.com and subscribe so you get the next issue delivered right to your inbox. That's ftjangler.com. SoFlyGear.com, led by Chief Apparel Guru and U.S. Youth Fly Fishing All-Star James Carlin, has a clothing line you're going to love. SoFly's mission to produce clothes that look good, perform well, can be worn on and off the water, and most importantly, are manufactured under rigorously sustainable methods. How do they do it? Bamboo, in a single word, a fabric that is buttery soft to the touch, durable, sun-resistant, and embossed with original designs and artwork. I've been wearing the SoFly hoodie on my last couple of uh, steelhead trips, and it's been a game changer. Whether hot or cold, wet or dry, I've been uh, feeling perfect in pretty much all conditions. I just I t- haven't taken this thing off. I mean, it's been, it's been pretty awesome. So totally support SoFly here. If you're ready to up your apparel game with this uh, lifestyle fly fishing gear uh, brand, head over to SoFlyGear.com. That's S-O-F-L-Y gear.com to get started today. And like I said, I've been loving it. So uh, pick up a hoodie uh, and you'll be like me and you'll be good to go. Okay, back to the show. And actually, Tyler, also from the Facebook group, mentioned um, your red fox squirrel hair nymph. Um, that's oh, a, yeah. That's, that's a dubbing blend. Can you talk about the uh, how that one came to be? Well, that that was a fairly early nymph. Uh, I am... Uh, what initially, when I first learned about nymphs, about ninety percent of them were made out of hard bodies. In other words, either uh, latex or uh, or quills or you know some opposite thing. And when uh, we started dubbing uh, flies, uh, the, the the first popular dubbing was mink hair and seal hair uh, and otter hair. And living here in Oklahoma, I had I did not have any access to that to those kind of materials. But uh, I did have rabbit and, and squirrel, and we shot a lot of red fox squirrels and gray squirrels to eat. And uh, so I started shaving that that body hair off off of the red fox squirrel, not the tail, but the body hair, the belly and the back, and blending it, and uh, and blending it sometimes with a little bit longer fiber, like a similar color rabbit hair and uh with my air blender and uh and it was just a phenomenal uh success for me uh and i just started immediately uh having great success on on trout and bass with it and and even today it's still i think the most productive nymph i've ever created Mm. it works for everybody all over the world because it looks like trout food or bluegill food you know yeah it and it's got a, it's got you know the thorax is kind of a, kind of a dark uh, brindle dun color, and that's the back hair off of the red fox squirrel, and the abdomen uh, is the belly hair, which is kind of a fox tan or fox uh, uh, orange, and then and then the tail is made from a few hairs and and under fur off the back, and then the front the, the hackle part is either picked out guard hairs. Yeah, or one wrap of of, of uh, brown partridge, you know, just oh, to yeah. simulate six legs. Not a not a whole lot, but uh, sometimes when I'm tying a little bit bigger red fox squirrel nymph than say size twelve, the guard hairs aren't quite long enough mm. on, on the thorax to simulate legs. So I just make a one single wrap of, of brown partridge or or a similar feather like uh, again, brown gamecock. Uh, a feather. That's it. That's it. Yeah, and and it it's it looks a little like a um. It's kind of similar to like a hare's ear, right? If somebody. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's in that same. It, it's uh. It's not really colored exactly, no. like, but it's in exactly the same class. Yeah. It's a suggestive fly that looks like a lot of things rather than imitating just one thing. But having said that, over the years, I've evolved that the general pattern, which is the color thing mm-hmm. into five different designs, five different shapes. And it, anything from a scud shape to a stonefly shape oh, to wow. a 
the shrimp shape. Nice. So you got it all covered in there. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, and uh, I wanted to go back to terrestrials just really quickly. You mentioned we talked about the Dave's Hopper. Are there other terrestrial patterns that you uh, you put out uh, that are out there? Uh, um, I'm not familiar with the other well, ones. The, yeah, the, the ones that are, are being produced by commercial interest, the ready fly, fly, fly company, are uh, a carpenter ad, and it's called a hot spot uh, carpenter ad, and it's a, a bright spot, excuse me. It's a, mm-hmm. You know, it's a black deer hair or, or, or elk hair ant, that uh, on the top of it has a bright fluorescent red spot, hmm. so you can see it when it lays on the water. Nice. And that's always been a very popular fly for terrestrial fishermen. Okay. And then I use I make an inchworm that's the same way, and it's made out of deer hair, the body, and it's ribbed, and then uh, a little uh, fluorescent uh, pink or orange spot on the top. Okay. And then another terrestrial is the, is the uh, periodic cicada. And uh, that's made out of a foam rubber body with uh, with crystal hair for wings and uh, rubber hackle for legs, and that's a really good seller too. Oh, cool, cool. But those are the main ones. Okay, those are the main. Great. And then if you take it to the river, you know, one of those flies. Let's just take your hopper. If you are fishing that hopper on one of your streams, or you know, on the white or wherever, any any tips you want to throw out there when you're fishing terrestrials to help somebody, you know, get into some more fish out there. Well, one one thing is that you know you're going to have your best luck with hoppers if the water's against the bank uh, where there's where there's a meadow, you know, and uh, because that's where the hoppers are going to fall in. Forested areas, you know, where there's a lot of trees, normally don't have grasshoppers, and gotcha. so if you're going to do well with a hopper, as far as what fish are looking for hoppers, you know, you find meadow areas where there's grass uh, close to the bank and hanging over the bank, and, and water coming up fairly close to the bank so that when the hoppers, you know, jump off the grass, they fall in the water. Yep. And then the next thing is that that those fish are keyed in more on the sound of the hopper than they are the side of the hopper because they listen for them to fall in. Hmm. And so, uh, so when you present the hopper, you want to plop it in just like a small stone. In other words, you want to make a significant plop on the water and then let it set for drifts about a foot or two and then twitch it every so often but uh, mm-hmm. that's usually the best way to do it but uh, 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 fishing hoppers is really a, almost like fishing bass bugs you know you're, you're, you're working the surface with noise and, mm-hmm. and a large profile and that, that brings the fish up that's a great that's a uh, great tip for sure okay uh, so, so that gives us a little, uh, a little uh, uh, advice there to jump into. I was kind of curious, you know. I know uh, I've had Davey Watton on the podcast uh, in a past episode, and other people um, that you know and you're friends with. What do you think about Davey? He's a character. Oh, Davey was. I love. Well, I love that episode because uh, you know, obviously, he's a big name. But I mean, wet fly fishing, right? It's it's like. Oh yeah, he's my wet fly guru. He's your wet fly. It, it, it's so cool because it's just this old school method, and I'm and that's part of the podcast here. You know, I, it's a throwback. It's a tribute for me to the wet fly swing just an old school method so i loved i love chatting with davy he's uh you know he's got lots of great information well, as well. well dave so much of of the traditional flies are still just as good today but it's the marketing that causes them not to uh, be popular because uh most people who try to sell flies try to sell something new every year oh uh, yeah and uh and a lot of the great flies that uh I, i've been in stores uh out west where they didn't have a day's hopper. No, you know they were still just new, new, bone-bodied hoppers and and purple hoppers and pink yep. hoppers and you know and uh, chartreuse hoppers and so. Uh, but it's it's marketing. Yeah. But those old flies are just as effective. You know the uh, the uh, uh, pheasant tail and the yep. and the hare's ear and all those. They catch fish just as fast today as they did, you know, fifty, sixty, hundred years ago. No, you're right. You're right. And there's been a big, and I've interviewed a lot of uh, people, you know, younger as well. And, you know, this uh, Euro nymphing and competitive, you know, there's this whole other sector of flies now people are tying, which don't even look like any insects at all. They're just, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, they're yeah. just kind of flashy, but that's, um, yeah, no, that's a whole other conversation. I did want to check in with you. Um, one thing, let me yeah. just make oh, one more remark about Davey, if you don't mind. Yeah. I met Davey over in England uh, in Redditch. Uh, I was doing a speaking tour in England, sponsored by Sage and by Partridge Hook Company. 
And I met Davey at a restaurant, or kind of a bar restaurant, uh, across the street from Partridge Hook Company. And, uh, and we, uh, at first, uh, we didn't communicate very well together, but, uh, I met him another time or two, and each time after that, we became closer and closer friends because he didn't look like an expert, but that, that young man knew fly fishing from one end to the other, you know, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. he was just, he blew my mind away with the, with the amount of knowledge he had about the history of fly fishing and about creative fly fishing and about fly fishing techniques. And so uh, he, he started uh, doing lectures in, uh, in the United States and he met a gal up in, uh, Chicago and he married her and he was living up there with her and doing, working at a fly shop up there. And I invited him down to Arkansas to, uh, to fish with me for a few days. And when he went, when he came and fished in Arkansas with me, he went back home told his wife he was moving to Arkansas. Hmm. She said, I'm not leaving my good job, my job. And he said, okay, we'll get a divorce. <laughs> and he divorced her and moved to Arkansas, and he's lived here happily ever since. Wow. No kidding. I didn't know so, that story. Uh, oh, my goodness. And, uh, and and that young man, he's not young anymore, but he's a hell of a lot younger than I am. Uh, he found out more about that White River system in four or five years, and it took me 20 years to learn. It was amazing because he is just one of those guys that, Boy, he does his homework, yeah. and he does it. He looks uh, way past just what he sees at first. You know, he looks at, for much deeper meetings on almost any technique or flying. And there's no better fly tire as far as the perfection of technique than that, that guy has. Uh, yeah, that definitely. I've uh, and I'll, I'll put some links to some of his uh, uh, stuff in, in the show notes as well. And yeah, the White River. It, it seems like we keep coming back to that river, and I'm not sure. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Why? Why is the White River? Maybe talk just briefly. What? Why it's unique, and if there are any other rivers out in that area that are even close to to that river. Well, the, first of all, the, the White River. <clears throat> uh, it the source of it, you know, is the Ozark Mountains, and the Ozark Mountains are limestone. And they get about 40 to 50 inches of rainfall a year there. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of runoff, but also a ton of aquifers. And and all that water that runs into the White River, basically, is really, really high in nutrient. And then the White River itself, basically below bowl shows down, there's a, there's a better part of 75 or 80 miles of river that support trout there. And it's a big river. You know, it's uh, 200 to 400 feet wide. And uh, every day when they generate water out of the, out of Bill Shows Dam, that's like uh, tidal effects in the ocean. And the fish in the river go through, you know, these feeding cycles according to the tides of the rivers. And so it's rich in, in all kinds of invertebrates. I mean, all kinds, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, tons of minnows and crawfish. And so uh, uh, the fish grow phenomenally well there because of the size of the water and the and the year-round perfect temperature, and uh, and the amount of food, mm-hmm. and there's probably not a productive, more productive piece of water in North America than that. Certainly for brown trout. No kidding. Uh, there's a you know the, the the average brown trout there, is probably 18 to 20 inches, and uh, and you know it's produced some 30 and 40 pounders. Wow. So uh, so it's phenomenal, and it's a river now, Dave, where you can go. In a tributary river called Norfolk River. Oh, yeah. Where you can catch on any given day rainbows and browns, uh, three species of cutthroat trout and brooks and a brook trout. So that's a that's a double double grand slam. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What is the what is the so that's a double grand slam and is that something I know you've had some stories of doing maybe even more than a double grand slam. Is there you can catch a lot a lot of species out there, right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, I was I was going to note. Um, you know, uh, B- Brian recently was talking about streamers. Uh, he was on, and he's fishing the yeah. North Fork out there. Um, is, yeah. Are streamers? Is that something you ever you got into uh, as far as tying or fishing? Any? Oh you know, yeah, well, had, yeah. The the, the Whitlock Sculpin probably is, is kind of my day's hopper of the streamer okay. world. And I've tied a lot of muzzler type streamers. Yeah. Uh, most mostly my streamers imitate uh, shad. You know, forge yeah. fish and or sculpins, flies, darters, and uh, sculpins and gobies and that sort of thing. Because uh, to me, streamers for trout are for big trout. You know, not just to catch trout, but uh, but I, but when I go after, 
uh, a trout with a streamer. I, I'm looking for something 10 pounds or over. And so I tie five, six, eight inch long streamers and fish them predominantly in horrible weather and high water and at night to catch, you know, as big a trout as can, that I can possibly can. So that's my kind of forte with them. But when I'm fishing in the daytime and, and weight fishing, whatever, I'm more of a nymph fisherman or a dry fly fisherman for, for trout. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. And um, I, I did want to know also on the, um, you know, I think when I think of entomologists, I think of, you know, some of the books I've had on my shelf and, you know, Rick Hayfley is an entomologist, um, you yeah. know, um, that's out in this area. Um, for you, I always kind of put you in that category as well, but w- would you consider yourself kind of an entomologist or what would you think, you know, I know. Well, yeah, 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 that's been, that's been something that I, uh, you know, I really didn't plan for. I just was trying to learn. Because I haven't, I've never taken an entomology course in my life, but I've just studied books and uh, studied the, the insects and, you know, and drawn them and photographed them and and uh, and checked stomachs uh, for fish and what their feeding preferences are. And so I've gained a lot of knowledge like that. If there was a, if I had one guru uh, uh, in in that particular topic, it was Gary Borger. Mm. Uh, I listened to Gary one time at a Trout Unlimited. Uh, uh, meeting and uh, and the way he the perspective that he had about quote kind of matching the hatch uh, just turned all the lights on for me as far as uh, is, is that subject and so I kind of followed you know his his way of thinking about that and the the book I the first book I wrote was because of, of that it was a guide to aquatic trout foods yeah. and uh, and Dave that sold all over the world it's still the most popular. Uh, fishing aquatic in, insect, uh, you know, fly fishing aquatic insect book. It's not only for fly fishing and fly tires, but a lot of universities use it too uh, as a textbook. That's right. Cool. Yeah. And you mentioned I was going to ask you about that, uh, Gary uh, Gary Border, and um, you know we've talked about some big names, and I've had him on as well. Any other uh, people in your life, uh, you know, that you would consider mentors that, that helped you, you know, kind of you know, along the way? Uh, I got my, my first fly fishing mentor was Joe Brooks because he was riding for outdoor life at the time and, and he was always out fishing out west and he was holding a big brown trout or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, a kid living in Oklahoma, he, he looked like a real hero, you know, a real, a real superhero. And, uh, and he was a good man. And I became, uh, before he passed on, we became very close friends. And he was just a remarkable uh Spokesperson, I think, for for fly fishing mm-hmm. in those days. Uh, the one that probably was the most that I learned most technical information from was a gentleman called Al McLean. Oh yeah. And Al, Al was uh, the, the fly fishing and fishing editor for Field and Stream for a lot of years, and 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 he had uh, he was a remarkably good fly fisherman, but uh, he had a very intuitive mind, and he was more you know, more of, uh, of an intellect in fly fishing than he was necessarily just an avid fly fisherman. And I learned so much from him. And then uh, another guy that was so cool was Ted Trueblood. Mm. And Ted was, you know, from out west and Field of Stream, talked him into coming to New York for a few years and riding for them. But he, he eventually got tired of that because he was a real mountain man. So he went back to Idaho and spent the rest of his life there catching trout and writing about them from there. But those three guys were fantastic. Yeah. And then uh, the fourth one, it was my con- my conservation mentor with Lee Wolf. Oh, yeah. Uh, because Lee Wolf uh, was was the father of catching release in this country, maybe the world. Uh, you know, he his, his principle was that, a you know, a, a big fish is too valuable to get this catch once. Yep. And so... Uh, he encouraged people to release the fish uh, so they, they could be recycled or, or, or could reproduce. And uh, uh, I just admire that so much. Yeah, that is that is great. And you just talked about four people that are, you know, big names to me. And I and I, um, you know, Joe Brooks, I've actually had the nephew on who did a documentary on his life. And we uh, talked yeah. about um, his. He was so cool. Yeah, he was just so cool. 
he had a very um, a part of his life that was pretty tough. They talk about in the documentary where he was actually living on the streets for a portion of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he came out of it. The amazing thing was he came out of that that period and he dedicated his life to teaching people about fly fishing. And obviously, yeah, yeah. you know, you're one of those people that that uh, he influenced. Um, yeah, yeah. Al McLean, I have some books, um, some old books from Al McLean, and I've heard of Ted Trueblood. I, I haven't interviewed anybody to talk about them. That's something maybe I can dig into more yeah. at a later point. Well, boy, he's, he was quite a guy, I'll tell you. He yeah. was amazing. He was a really, really good writer. Yeah. You know, he's got an encyclopedia called Al McLean's Encyclopedia. Yep. encyclopedia. And it, it takes a pretty good-sized man just to pick it up. <laughs> you know, it's like one of the big dictionaries. but uh, And almost everything you could think of uh, in fishing is in that is in that encyclopedia it's amazing uh accumulation of art and i've got a full page of my flies oh cool in it, uh, uh, but uh but i was quite a guy cool yeah I'll, I'll put a link out to that one as well if we can i'm not sure if people can still find that uh, online yeah. out there so um okay uh, uh we're going to uh dave we're going to wrap this thing up here pretty quick i just want to check on a couple of things before we do um okay one of them you know you've done a ton of stuff obviously you've had this amazing career in fly fishing um is there anything that you know you think of as you're, you're kind of most proud of over all the years everything you've done well uh you know let me just say this and uh, this is the people who one way or the other have some kind of a of an inferiority feeling about themselves that I, when I was born, I, I had a very difficult birth and, and uh, received a, a pretty bad uh, back injury from it. And then before I was four years old, I had rheumatic fever hmm. and polio. And I was pretty much an invalid until I was uh, six or seven years old. And when I discovered fly fishing, uh, every day after that, I became a stronger person. And, I've, and no doctor that I ever talked to said I lived to be 30. Hmm. And I'm 86. Wow. And I'll say this: two things that, that caused that: fly fishing and having a good wife. Hmm. And uh, those those two things uh, gave me, you know, the incentive to become a really good person, work hard, and 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 have a great life. And I think that anybody that takes up this sport, uh, that they'll they'll receive those kinds of blessings. Hmm. That is that is powerful, and and I know I think Emily she she's there uh, with you, right? That's uh oh, she's my soulmate. Oh, she's a good girl. That's amazing. Yeah, and I'll I'll put a link. I know there's been uh, you guys have been on at least one podcast where I think uh, both of you were on, so I'll put a link yeah. out to that show. And and yeah. yeah, I mean I and I go back to Joan Wolf again because that was way back in episode 100. And at the end of that episode, she actually gave me relationship advice, which is really amazing. And. Uh, you know, uh, she said, uh, if you could get along with, uh, with, uh, your partner on the river, then you know, yeah. you're, you know, you're good. And, and, uh, you know, Megan, um, you know, my, you know, yeah. who I consider my soulmate as well. We, sometimes yeah. we struggle at home, but when we get on the river, it, yeah. it's our, it's yeah. our happy place. So I, I can well, sure, like, sure. you know what I mean? Do you think there's yeah. some truth to that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Emily, Emily's my favorite fishing partner. There you go. And, uh, I'll tell you a really funny story if you've got time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, several years ago, she became enamored about kayaks, you know, the sit-on heights. Yep. And so, uh, and I'm a canoe person, and 90% of the of, uh, of the fishing that I choose to do in a boat is in a canoe. And I just grew up doing that. And uh, and I paddled her for years in canoes, and she, she paddled me some as we fished, but mostly I paddled her. Well, she got this gorgeous kayak, and we went down our favorite river here in Oklahoma, the Illinois River, for about uh, 10 miles of afloat, you know, fishing for bass. And so she was fishing out of her kayak, and, and I was fishing out of a solo canoe. And so we got in that evening and loaded the boat up. I said, well, hon, what did you think about fishing out of your kayak? She said, you know, you want to know the truth, Dave? I'd really rather you paddle me in a canoe. Hmm. She said, it was because I could visit with you, but I, but I could catch a lot more fish because I didn't <laughs> have to paddle. That's right. And That's so lovely. she is... She's only been in that kayak three or four times since then, but she's been in the, my can, our canoe, you know, maybe fifty times. So. That's a, there it is. So anyway, but that, I always was amused at that. Yeah. No, that's a good that's a good story for sure. Uh, and, and one more one more big one. This kind of goes back. This is kind of a fun question as well, but. You know, I'm not sure where you were when you were uh, 25 years old, but if you think of that person, that kid back in the day, would would there be any advice you would give uh, give him? You know, yourself back when you were 25. Now that you know you have a, a life. 
of what you've done? Well, the only thing that uh, I, I would, you know, that I, I just got really concerned about is that I never knew how to manage my my income, mm. and I, I would advise anybody that's going to be self-employed or or be, or try to uh, to be comfortably retired at a certain age uh, to uh, to take some business courses mm. to be able to manage their finances uh, because uh, that you don't make a lot of money in this sport, but you make enough that if you manage it properly, you know you wouldn't be you you you, you could be independent by yeah. the time you're seventy years old, but. Uh, Yep. And that that's what I would do. I would, would instead of uh, taking maybe so much chemistry and physics and biology, I would have uh, mm-hmm. taken a couple of three good business courses. That's it. Uh, that's a that's a great tip. And there's tons of stuff because now. we all have to make a living. Yep. And uh, and we all have to make that money uh, uh, do the best it can for us. And if you don't take a business course, uh, you know, or, or understand business, uh, uh, that that money goes away in a hurry without the really being able to make it work for you for you that's right no it does yeah money money comes and goes for sure uh hey and you yeah. also the the hall of fame right you were inducted into the hall of fame was that um uh, can you talk well, about I'm, just... in seven, I'm in seven hall of fame which one are you talking about? oh wow well, well maybe you can just talk about the one that's the you know the biggest one that sticks out to you what well, i'm not even sure well, the seven what are the, the seven hall of fames well uh one of them is the catskill hall of fame One's the Appalachian Hall of Fame. Another one's the Southern Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. Another one's the uh, uh, the Sports Fishing Hall of Fame, okay. which is basically uh, up in Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, another another one is uh, the uh, German Hall of Fame. Hmm. And uh, let's see, maybe I think there's one more. Oh, dear. IJF just made me a member of their Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's a whole, there's a whole so, bunch. I didn't realize there was a bunch yeah. of Hall of Fames. Well, you know, yeah. if you live long enough, I guess you'll make them all. <laughs> well, some people will. I don't think, uh, yeah, you got you to gotta put your time in now. You've had, uh, let's see, we're in the 20s. Yeah, you've had 60 years, right, of, uh, of yeah, full-time yeah. fly fishing. I, uh, I'll tell you one funny story, though. Uh, I was down in Atlanta, and they were having a, a, a ceremony inducting uh, some Hall of Fame people into the Southern Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. And uh, and they, they told me, you know, to, they'd like for me to attend the meeting because I was going to be inducted in. So I attended, and the master ceremony started talking about me. And, and when I walked up there, I thought he was going to faint because he thought I was dead. <laughs> really? And, yeah, and so because <laughs> nobody told him because I don't think he was actually uh, a member of the, the group. I think right. they, they just asked him because he was a good speaker and whatever. Oh wow! To be master strongly, and his his jaw dropped like he can't believe when <laughs> I walked up and I'm some Dave Whitlock, you know, or something like that. But that's but awesome. We got everybody just died laughing. They thought that was so funny because he was so startled that I was still alive. That's perfect, perfect, Dave. All right. Well, hey, I'll, I'll let you get out of here in the next, um, you know, uh, kind of six months to a year. Anything uh, we can expect from you? Anything new you got going? Any, it sounds like you got a new book you're working on, right? Well, that hopefully uh, I can find the time to uh, to do the new book. And then uh, because it's basically a lot of what I've talked about, how I, I overcame the handicaps and grew up and, and how I learned how to tie flies and, and how because I didn't like fly fishing and have an instructor, I developed my own techniques. And uh, it, it, initially, I thought it was a handicap, but Dave, it was a, it was it was actually uh, a blessing because I developed techniques that uh, that were sometimes a lot better than they would have taught me otherwise. Hmm. And so, uh, and so, and then when I, and then the, there's the second part of the book is materials and tools and mm-hmm. all all the paraphernalia and fly fishing, and then the the last half is is 36 of the original flies that I've created, like today's hopper and oh, the wow. bug and internet sculpting. I had to tie them. That's, that's so cool. And what's the name? Is there a, a title of the book? Fly Tires Life. Fly Tires Life. That's perfect. I was going to, that just covers it. So well, and this, yeah. this episode we're doing here is going to live out there for many years. So I'll put a link uh, when that comes out to the book. Okay. And that'll, uh, yeah. I want to ask that. you what, what your top, top 10 flies were. So that covers it there. Um, yeah. The uh, one the the reason that I'm really going to the trouble of this book, other than just for for you know, uh, is that most of the time 
when people have talked to me about writing a book, they say, when are you going to do, you know, a, a book about your fly tag? And, uh, and, and I've done a lot of articles, but I never really put a full book together. And so, uh, uh, it's probably the one, the one subject that's been most requested for me mm-hmm. to do, and I haven't done it. So, uh, yep. I'm going to, uh, endeavor to create a really good, fine book, uh, that, uh, will be all about that subject. Perfect. And you ha- how many books do you have out there now published or the old, five, anything? Five that I did up, you know, solely by myself. Yeah. That's right. Five books, and then you've done another twenty or thirty that were you you had. Some, oh yeah, yeah. I've collaborated, right? And I'm and I might be the champion forward writer too. Uh, oh, right. I've written a lot. I've written a lot of forwards, which is a real honor. I love doing it. Yeah. But uh, it was yeah. just so interesting uh, because uh, uh, getting able being able to make comments on other people's work. That's right. What What is the quickly? I mean, what is the secret to writing a good forward in a book? Any tips there? Yeah, well, to know the person. Yeah. And, uh, and, and of course, obviously, to be able to read or see some part of the book, yeah. you know, to, to really see what's there before you start talking about it. But usually, uh, the, the book author uh, is a really unique and special person. Mm. And and uh, what makes you want to read somebody's book and, or, or look at somebody's art is knowing that they're a special person, you know, and uh, and that's what I usually try to dwell on. Is uh, how unique that person is, and how what a good opportunity we have to be able to share his knowledge. That's it. That's it, Dave. Well, I hey, you're uh, obviously a very unique person, and the you know how you've combined the art, your art and illustrations with your writings and entomology yeah. and everything. It's been yeah. it's been cool to see all these years. So I just wanted to say thanks for everything you've done uh, in fly fishing sir. and. Appreciate that, Dave. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on here, and I'll, and I'll be keeping your. Uh, you know, you're only 86, so you got you got a, a, quite a few years left here. I I was talking, we were joking recent or not recently, but I interviewed uh, Frank Moore is out in the West here. He's a big steelhead guy, and he yeah. was he was 90. Let's see, I think he's 95. And I remember when yeah. I, we're not in person here, but I remember when I shook his hand, he he felt like he was crushing my hand. It was so strong. Yeah, wow. wow. You know what I mean? Like so. Yeah, yeah. 95 is like the new. Uh, I think the new 75 or whatever they say, right? Right. So you, so I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing more work from you as we go here, Dave. Yeah, well, you know, we are living a lot longer and staying healthy while we do it. Thank goodness for, for, for uh, good, good medics and medicines and, and good lifestyles now. But uh, yeah, because yeah, when I was when I was a young person, uh, most people were pretty well over the hill by the time they were 65. Yeah, you gosh, know? isn't that crazy? So, so you remember uh, that time when 65 was old and now, yeah, it's totally changed. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So anyway. Good stuff. All right, Dave, we'll all send people. I'll put a link to DaveWhitlock.com uh, if they want to connect with a lot of the resources that things we talked about. And, uh, yeah, well, just until I connect with you uh, later on, uh, just want to thank you again. Okay, Dave. I've really enjoyed uh, being Dave Whitlock with you. Thank, uh, hey, you so I appreciate the opp- thank you so much for the opportunity. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 160. And now... A poem read from Henry Hughes, the deputy editor of the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. (laughs) All right. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Um, A lot of you uh, know when you're steelhead fishing, you may have one or two shots at a fish after after many hours on a a cold river. So this poem, uh, Steelhead Almost, is about that. It's about two men, uh, one in particular really wanted to catch a fish because if he got a nice fin clip fish, he was going to bring it home. And his wife had planned a, a barbecue, and so he was hoping to bring home some fish. But Too dark to retie, they walk fishless over the bridge, break down rods and unboot for the dry drive home. Oh, well, one man says, that's fishing. The other doesn't want to talk. There's a barbecue tomorrow. If you catch something, she said, that'd be wonderful. Following headlights, he feels again the strike behind the stone. Cherry blushed chrome, leap silver and dive. Then gone. Canyon pouring river, swallow spading air. The trees shrug as if nothing happened. In a hole deeper than sleep, The steelhead undulates 
fragrance and flow, nudging forward 3,000 RNG eggs in her bright sleeve. That was awesome. Uh, thanks, Henry, for taking the time to do that. If you want to read a uh, poem on an upcoming episode, you can reach out to me. Just head over to wetflyswing.com members and uh, sign up there for a free, uh, free version, and you can uh, check in with me. Um, and I want to also check in uh, if you have a business and want to grow your online influence, you can head over to uh, my new podcast at outdoorsonline.co. That's outdoors with an S. Thanks again for stopping by today to check out the show. I'm looking forward to catching up this soon. I hope to maybe see you on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.